0: I'm Mark Olson. I write about movies here at the Los Angeles Times, and this is the Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet.
1: I always come back to the old house. What if it's empty? What if we just peeked inside? There are parties. You can put on one of your plays. We can yell.
2: Ah! 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 It is his house. Our house. That's not your old house and that's not your neighborhood.
3: Hey, if you're going to San Francisco.
0: The Last Black Man in San Francisco is a film about a friendship, a family, a house, a city, and its community. San Francisco serves as a stand-in for cities across the country undergoing gentrification. The film, which won two prizes at the Sundance Film Festival, captures the deep sense of loss that overcomes families who are pushed from their homes and stripped of their communal experience. It's also another installment in the recent wave of films out of the Bay Area made by people of color about people of color. Later on, we'll talk about Late Night, starring Emma Thompson and Mindy Kaling, and what's the future for this kind of smart, Charming mid level gem in a post streaming world. Will they continue to fill up theaters? Let's listen in. And with me to discuss The Last Black Man in San Francisco, I'm joined by my colleagues, Garrick Kennedy, who covers music and pop culture, film critic Justin Chang, and film reporter Jen Yamato. And Garrick, I want to start with you. You wrote a story about the movie, and I've seen you kind of talking about it on Twitter. I feel like I've seen you respond to this movie in a way that I have not seen you respond to a movie before. What is it about this movie in particular that kind of grabs you?
1: I saw it last month, and something that really jumped out to me immediately was how they were framing this relationship between two Black men. It's something that you don't really get to see on screen often. This level of intimacy, this level of trust. There's a really fascinating thing that's happening between the two of them, sort of this intentional way of leaving it open to interpretation because they know so many different types of Black men will be seeing this movie. So a lot of things are unexplained between the two of them, which I think is really beautiful in a way, but it also allows so many of us to see ourselves in this and to see how we have interacted um, with our friends or with our partners or with our lovers or with the guy that we wished we could be with. There's so many different ways to read what's happening on screen, which I thought was really lovely.
0: The movie stars the actors Jimmy Fails and Jonathan Majors, and it's based on the real-life friendship between Joe Talbot, the director, and Jimmy Fails, and a lot of the story comes from Jimmy Fails' own story, and the movie is kind of about a friendship and a house and a city based in San Francisco. Jen, I always turn to you as the San Francisco desk.
4: Bay Area! It makes my heart sing anytime I see the Bay Area represented in movies because growing up there, I grew up in the East Bay, there were like never movies made there, let alone set there. And so it's been really special to see this recent wave of Bay Area born or bred or loyal filmmakers, but it's been really special because you see a lot of these homegrown voices and voices of filmmakers of color a lot of the time, really establishing sort of a new canon that reflects the changing Bay Area, but also the specialness and the diversity and the history of what it's like to be from such a special place. So it's really nice to see something like The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which is so beautiful and so powerful and so of the city and such a love letter to the city and yet does not pull punches when it comes to really critiquing that city as well. The one-line premise is a young man and his best friend try to regain the childhood home that he loves so much, right? So why is that on paper such a deceptively— simple premise for what this movie really is. And it's in the telling of it because it's so much in such a relatable way about how a sense of place can give us a sense of identity and what happens when that sense of place and belonging and ownership is taken away.
0: And Justin, can you talk a little bit about the tone of the movie? I mean, as Jen is saying, it doesn't feel like the sort of straightforward drama that the log line might present. Can you describe kind of the tone of the movie, like what this movie feels like?
3: It's very wistful and yet wry and melancholy and oddly funny at times. This movie has a very rich sense of humor, this sort of deadpan, droll sensibility. Some people have compared it to Wes Anderson, partly because the movie is so intricately designed visually. I don't really see that as much. I don't think the movie is as arch or as whimsical, and I think it has a lot more kind of political rage than you find in a Wes Anderson movie. Although that rage, I think, is sublimated to this, it's a very gentle spirit to this movie. It's able to somehow hold gentleness and sorrow and anger and humor kind of all in this perfect balance. It's only when the movie ends, I think, that you realize just what an emotionally full experience you've had, or I certainly had, to the film. It's also just a gorgeous piece of filmmaking, Square aspect ratios are kind of coming back in vogue, I think. And this one is a nearly square, boxy aspect ratio. And what that does is it draws your attention to the spaces and the environments and how these actors and these characters move about in this space because the movie is not just about them, it is about their home. And so you get these beautiful shots of that house. You can just feel this is a movie about Jimmy Fails and his longing for his childhood home and just the way... um, Joe Talbot and Adam Newport-Berra and his cinematographer shoot that house in this sort of front-facing composition, you just feel this affection for the place streaming through the camera. So it's just, it's gorgeously shot, gorgeously scored too by Emile Mosseri. The music has this majestic churning quality that almost feels a little bit at odds with the material in a way that I think is really interesting and it takes something that might seem somewhat drab and forlorn and sad, and it gives this this almost triumphant, exultant quality at times.
0: And Jen, can you talk a little bit more about how the issues that the movie deals with of gentrification is, feels very specific to... San Francisco, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I think there is maybe a more universal aspect to it. And like, how did you feel about the way the movie sort of presented these issues of, of gentrification of people being pushed out of their own neighborhoods, their own cities?
4: Right. Well, I don't think you need to be familiar with the individual neighborhoods of San Francisco or the historical geography of the neighborhoods within the city to get it. The movie opens on this majestic shot in Bayview, Hunter's Point where our lead characters now reside. Jimmy Fails plays Jimmy Fails, and Jonathan Majors plays his best friend, Mont. The both of them live with Mont's grandfather, who's played by Danny Glover. To get to the heart of the city, where Jimmy's childhood home that means so much to him is, in the movie set in the Fillmore District, but they actually filmed it in this old Victorian in the Mission, Um, to get to this home that means so much to Jimmy. The two go on this epic skateboard ride into the city that really takes you across the landscape. And as the camera's tracking them on their way into the city from the neighborhoods where their community has been pushed out through gentrification and extreme development in the city, you see the landscape written in the faces of the people that they're passing on the way in. And you get a sense for... Not just the scope of the city, but what it means that it takes so much effort to get from one place to the other. And it's one of my favorite shots of this year. It's a gorgeous shot that is really telling without having to really explain why it's showing us these, these images.
0: And, Garrick, you were telling me as before we were recording today about how, you know, these are issues that aren't just affecting San Francisco. You could find these things happening here in Los Angeles. You could find them happening in New York and all around the country. What do you think it means to have a movie like this now that's grappling with these issues of gentrification?
1: I think it's really important, I mean, because right now we're watching San Francisco, just like LA, just like Orange County, really see this uptick in homelessness and folks who are being really pushed out of their homes. And I think there is such a huge misunderstanding of how quickly that can become a reality for people that I do think that... This film is exploring in a way where they're not trying to force the issue of gentrification down our throats, because I think if you wanted to do that, we would maybe see some of what that violence looks like. And when I say the violence of gentrification, I mean, you know, interacting with neighbors who are, why are you here? Because you don't feel like you're a part of this community, because I've now decided what this community looks like. Or when folks are calling the police on people, this idea of people... When they have decided to come into a place and they've made it their own, which you're right, they bought this house, they've now changed how everything is here. And so there's a lot of confrontation that comes with that. And so that particular violence is not shown. But when you live in these hoods, home ownership seems like something that is nothing that people of color will ever be a part of. I'm going through that right now in L.A. and it's you have this moment of imposter syndrome of like, well, how is it that I'm able to do this? And you have that feeling because you're taught to feel that way. So you see these houses, even though you're in a part of town which a lot of folks don't want to live in, these houses are now a million dollars. And that's just the reality of what this is. And I think about in San Francisco, and you think of what's going on there, where it's one out of what every 11,000 people is a billionaire. Like, my God, like, I can't imagine what it's like to try to navigate that or to have a space where you're paying $2,500, $3,000 for a one bedroom. And so all these things that price people out in such a way, there's so much trauma that's rooted in that. And I think that this film could have gone in a different direction. It could have really chose to explore some of those things, but that wasn't the story that they wanted to tell. The story that they wanted to tell was really rooted in this idea of... The identity that you attach yourself to, based off of home.
0: I like so much the the tour guide is played by Jello Biafra, who's the yes. lead singer of the group the Dead mm-hmm. Kennedys, and that's just such a, like a funny, witty, smart thing for the filmmakers to do. And and Justin, I, I want to ask you. I mean, as much as we talk about the performances by Jimmy Fails and Jonathan Majors, I mean the cast of this movie: Danny Glover, Rob Morgan, Tashina Arnold. There are so many good performances all through the movie. How did you feel kind of about the casting and the performances in the movie?
3: Yeah, there are. And I think the movie uses those performances very effectively and economically. I mean, Rob Morgan, as Jimmy's father, is not in the movie for very much, but he leaves this pretty indelible impact on it, I think. His anger, you just feel his sense of just defeat is so total that in a way you only need those one or two scenes, but they pervade the entire movie. I love Danny Glover as Mont's grandfather. And just to pick up a quick thread of what Garrick was saying, the structure of this movie is really interesting because it does feel at times like it could be a triangle between two men in a house, but a triangle in which there is some conflict, but it's a very harmonious kind of triangle. And I love the character of Mont in part because you get such a sense of the richness of his inner life and his intellectual life. There are constant scenes of him sketching in his notebook, sketching the scenery, and he writes this play which becomes the machinery by which a lot of the dramatic conflict in the movie is ultimately brought to the surface and resolved he's someone who feels really out of step and i think that the movie captures both the jimmy and the mont characters two people who don't seem to fit in anywhere and it's a movie i think for people who have felt that way it's a movie for a lot of people but especially for people who feel out of step just with the rhythms of daily life and with the crowd or whatnot and it's because the movie is sort of slow to build it gives you that time to really um to sort of sink into it i think yeah
0: jen you recently interviewed jonathan majors um who plays mont in in the movie tell me a little bit about what it was like meeting and talking to him and kind of like his impressions of what's happened with the movie
4: Jonathan Majors is so good in this movie and he has done projects before this uh, Hostiles starring Christian Bale that western he's in that was one of his most I think prominent film roles before this um a lot he of films It was really
1: great in When We Rise which yes. nobody saw. <laughs> <laughs> no one watched it but it he was fantastic.
4: And also he has a number of upcoming films that are about to come out. And he came to the LA Times office for a piece that I'm working on that will be up soon, just days away from going to Atlanta to film the series that he is going to be the lead on, Lovecraft Country, which is the show that's produced by J.J. Abrams and Jordan Peele. So I really think he's on the verge of really popping big, and he deserves to. He's so good as Monts and it's so unlike... Any of the characters he's played before. But he imbues Mott with this real gentle sensitivity that I think allows that character to be a very healing presence for more than just Jimmy. He stages this play after observing his friend's ordeal. It's a play within the movie and invites the community, invites all these characters that we've met distant family members, community members. And that sequence is a really beautiful showcase, I think, for what Jonathan Majors is capable of.
0: And Derek, um, some of the, about your experience with writing about the movie, interviewing Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fails. I mean, they seem to have such a unique dynamic between them. Their friendship feels really... Special? Did you get a sense of that when you were yeah, talking to them for abs- the
1: movie? absolutely. I mean, it's something where I think any of us who've had friendships that, you know, span decades where it, you feel like a sibling almost. The lines are so blurred at a certain point where aside of having not the same blood. It doesn't even feel like there's a difference between the two of you. And that's something that is really so apparent when you talk to the two of them. There were some really interesting things, especially from Joe, who has sort of emerged as a bit of the spokesperson for the film, even though it's really about Jimmy. And I think it's something that Jimmy has mentioned, he's still working through a lot of these things. He's still working through this relationships with his parents. It's really such a struggle. I mean, there's such this beautiful scene where he sees his mom on the bus, and that's actually his mom. And it had actually happened before. So I just think of what it's like to be so detached from a parent that, you know, you see them... On a bus, you didn't even know that they're back in your city. Like, you guys are that far out of touch. And so that has led to just a lot of things that he's still really working through. So Joe, I think he's able to speak a little bit more eloquently and enthusiastically about a lot of these things. But I asked him, I was like, what was the biggest challenge of getting this thing made? And he was like, getting Danny Glover to agree to do it. They'd been emailing him for five years asking him if he (laughs) would do this. And it was finally to the point where he was like, okay, yeah, sure. But they were like, not going to give up because they didn't didn't see anybody else for this role. And
0: Justin, Garrick Mm. brings up such an interesting point in that the way we in the media, the way at film festivals that movies are sort of responded to, the director is so often made the spokesman for a movie. And I know when this premiered at Sundance, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, it's this story of Black masculinity, Black community. People were very surprised, you know, when a, a white guy got up there and introduced the movie that you know joe talbot is white but he has this friendship with jimmy fails and what do you think of that like is that something that is worth talking about is it give the movie some extra layer of distance or observation like what do you think of the fact that in this what feels like very authentic movie there is still this element of like uh wait a minute there like what's going on with this movie
3: Yeah, I think some people pointed out, and I think a few people were even angry or indignant about it. You know, The Last Black Man in San Francisco is not the first and will not be the last movie that is explicitly about black life that happens to be told, at least partly, by a white filmmaker. I mean, there was Ballast by Lance Hammer. There was, of course, Beasts of the Southern Wild by Ben Zeitlin. Um, I think it was telling that the jury awarded this movie two prizes, one for Joe Talbot's direction and one for collaboration. And I don't exactly remember what the citation on that award was, but I think they felt compelled and rightly so to acknowledge that festivals tend to celebrate directors and celebrate auteurs. But maybe there's more than one auteur at work here and it's clearly such an intuitive and organic collaboration I think it's pretty sad that people would dismiss this movie, as I've seen a few people do based on the fact that simply because the director happens to be white, I think we need all sorts of lenses on black life and on people of color. And I wouldn't say that it doesn't matter who is you know, operating those lenses. I just think it's something that needs to be held in a proper balance and always with an appreciation for what the work is. And you look at this work and it's just extraordinary.
0: Garrett, do you have any thoughts on the authorship of this movie and who we give the credit to?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's come up a lot in conversations that, you know, I've had with friends. I think a lot of folks were a little bit turned off when they learned about Joe and their relationship, which I, I struggle with because I, I don't think it's fair. I think it's any two friends deciding to do a project together, I think is great. Also, their story, I think in particular, I mean, these guys have been, you know, they They've been together in high school. I mean, they've been friends for so long. Joe has such deep respect. For Jimmy, I think, um, and it comes across in how he's portrayed in the film, because the story is by, obviously, Jimmy, but Jimmy didn't co-write it with Joe. You know, this guy Rob co-wrote it, and so and that's a guy that they found because he was doing work in prisons, helping prisoners become filmmakers. And so I I just think there's such a deep respect, not only given to Jimmy in this story, but also to Black folks in San Francisco and the city itself. And I think it's so nuanced in so many different ways that's so really, really, really gorgeous that I don't think it matters at all that there is someone white that's involved because they wanted to show this dynamic between two Black men. They wanted to show this relationship between two Black men. They wanted to show two Black men who love each other deeply. And expressed that and expressed this familial aspect as well, but also this, this communal aspect of what that love looks like. And it's rendered itself in different ways, which I think certain people will get, other folks will not get. But I also think that because Joe is a part of that, I don't think that that makes him any more or less unable to show that because of ultimately a great filmmaker is a great filmmaker and i think what this these men have done is something that is truly 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 beautiful but also you know i the first time i watched this i was like there's no way that this these guys have never done like another movie before like there's just you know there's there was so much of a high level to it that i thought was so great and so worthy of all of these conversations that are happening and Jen, to kind of bring this back
0: to the Bay Area, you know, people have been talking so much about the fact that there have been at the past couple of Sundances, a number of notable movies, Blind Spotting and Sorry to Bother You, I think being the best examples. What do you think it says that these films are coming out of the Bay Area? And do you feel like they are connected? Like, is it okay to like see the, the connections between these movies?
4: If they're not directly connected, you know, a lot of these filmmakers do know each other or they hear about each other's projects and they're mostly very supportive of each other. And I think it comes out of a generation that has a lot to say about what they've observed around them happening in the city and also opportunity. There has historically not been a real feature film infrastructure in the Bay Area unless you're George Lucas (laughs) or like Pixar. And so to see this new wave of independent filmmakers, mostly filmmakers of color, telling stories about Bay Area people of color has been really new, frankly. And I do think that there is something in the water or the the fog in the air or something, but I think it's a combination of those things, a sensibility, something to say, which has always been there, but then the opportunity to say it. In this film, interestingly enough, Brad Pitt's company also is a producer on it. So I think it's no accident that films that we're seeing do need some power behind it uh, of people with the capability to make movies happen, giving voice, giving platform an opportunity to independent filmmakers or first or second time filmmakers like this. It's really exciting. You know, I hope it continues. I feel like it will. I think we're going to see some more production come out of the Bay, both on the TV and feature side.
0: One of my favorite moments in the movie comes kind of late in the film. Jimmy Fails is riding the bus and there are these two women who are sort of like kvetching to each other about San Francisco, what they don't like about being there. And you sort of assume they're both transplants. And one of them is played by Thor Birch and she's wearing a leather jacket and she's on a bus. And that feels like a very conscious reference to the movie Ghost World, the 2001 film that starred Birch along with Scarlett Johansson. And Jimmy says this just incredibly powerful line where he says, you don't get to hate it unless you love it. Like you can't complain about this city until you've sort of like done your time, had the feelings, know how you feel about it. And like, I found that as you know, I've moved around the country a little bit in my own life and I like I found that that idea to be extremely powerful. Like that that scene like really got me. Justin, did you have another favorite moment from the movie?
3: That's one of them. I think I actually hadn't even arrived at that now seemingly obvious conclusion, which is that it's a ghost world reference. Because my reaction both times I saw the movie was like, huh, Thora Birch. Good to see her. Uh, you know, <laughs> I hadn't made that leap, and yet it makes so much sense. It's also worth noting, you know, Jimmy Fails is a third-generation San Franciscan. Joe Talbot is a fifth-generation San Franciscan. And so another reason why I think the debate over whether Joe Talbot is white or black is such a specious one, it's an organic achievement. It comes organically out of their relationship and their roots in this city. And so a lot of that knowledge and that history and that cultural memory is brought to bear on the movie And it's a ghost story, too. I think the movie is haunted by the ghosts of San Francisco past. There's a lot of shots of the, you know, the once thriving shipyard at Bayview Hunter's Point, which is now totally polluted and abandoned. And there are allusions to the fact that during World War II, when the Great Migration and thousands of African-Americans who came to work in these shipyards and became very sick as a result of it, actually, too, and, and now they're all gone. And there's a reference they acknowledge, too, that the Fillmore District used to be home to thousands of Japanese Americans who were then, of course, interned during World War II. So the sense of cultural migration is just a a continual theme throughout this movie. And you watch this movie, you feel like it knows this history down to its bones, even if it's giving you just little glimmers of what that's all about.
0: And so with that, I think that's a great place for us to wrap up this conversation about The Last Black Man in San Francisco. So I thank you all for joining us. Garrick, tell folks where they can find your work online.
1: At Garrett Kennedy on Twitter.
0: Jen?
4: If you're going to Twitter, you can find me at at Jen Yamato.
0: And Justin?
3: You can find me at Justin C. Chang.
1: We built these ships. Dredged these canals. In the San Francisco they never knew existed. This is our home.
5: You two stick together.
0: And we're going to take a brief break, and we'll be right back to talk about the
2: movie Late Night. This episode is presented by A&E's Live PD, Cable's number one show on Friday and Saturday nights. Live PD showcases the policing of America with 36 cameras across eight cities following diverse police departments in real time as they patrol their communities for your consideration for outstanding structured reality program.
1: What exactly is wrong with my bits? You're a little old and a little white. What can I do about that? Let me introduce you to a new series, Catherine Newbery, White Savior.
2: I feel like I could never hell a cab.
1: Let's see what we can do about that.
2: I actually didn't need to go anywhere.
1: That doesn't matter. This is how white saviors
2: work. Into the cab.
0: Writing for The Times, Kenny Turan called Late Night, starring Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson, a swell romantic comedy. We'll also use the occasion to discuss what this movie means and the bigger picture of the contemporary, specialized movie landscape. So joining me in that endeavor, I have with me Kenny Turan, Times Movie Critic. Kenny, thanks for being here. Good to be here, as always. And making his debut on The reel, I have Times Movie Editor Jeff Berkshire. Jeff, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. And now, Kenny, why did you call this movie a swell romantic comedy of a particular sort? I mean, the movie, it feels like a romantic comedy. It's got kind of like the fizz of a romantic comedy, but there's not actually much romance in the movie. So what is it that you like about the movie? Why did you refer to it that
5: way? Well, it's a romance between these two women and their work. They're in love with their work. They're not in love with each other. They're not necessarily in love with men, though one of them is. But it's their work that the film is about. That's what finally brings them together, even though at first they are not each other's kind of person. But they share this love for the work, for comedy. And that proves to be all important.
0: And what is it that you liked about the movie? I know you first saw it back at the Sundance Film Festival. What to you is special about Late Night?
5: It's a very rare thing. It's a smart adult comedy that is not raunchy that makes you laugh, that is about something, that is just what used to be 50, 60, 70 years ago, this is what movies were all about. And now, like, you see one, it's like seeing a white buffalo or something. You say, oh, my God, they made one of these movies. How could they have done it? It's a real throwback to me of the best kind. But it's also very forward-looking. That's the great thing about it, is that it's talking about the issues of today. It's not some fusty movie. It's very much about issues of power, issues of gender. All these things are in it but there's comedy too. And that's a wonderful combination.
0: Another the movie was written by Mindy Kaling, who stars and it is based in part on her own experiences when she was breaking into like the comedy business and comedy writing, that she was a diversity hire in the writer's room of the office. And here's a clip now from the film in which Max Casella plays one of Kaling's fellow writers who's giving her something of a pep dog.
3: I will not be marginalized by the iron fist of white privilege that pervades this work environment.
1: I am not trying to silence your strong female Indian woman of color spirit. Hashtag me too. Trans is beautiful. Blah, blah, blah. You're still a new writer with no experience. You need to stop giving advice and write something. You're a writer. So write.
0: Do you feel like you like seeing a movie deal with real world issues and sort of contemporary issues in the way that this does a comedy?
5: Yeah. I mean, I think you get the best of both worlds. You get to be entertained, but you get to think about issues. You get to grapple with them. And, you know, Mindy Kaling, also, she kind of identifies with both characters. I mean, she's the person breaking in. She's a diversity hire. But also, there is the Mindy show. She's run her own show. She has been a big cheese. So she knows what it's like to be Emma Thompson's character, who is this late night anchor. So she knows both sides of the equation. It's
0: funny. It's hard to say that a movie's secret weapon is Emma Thompson. I mean, she's (laughs) Emma Thompson. She mostly has been doing kind of the mcphee films yeah. which have been more maybe family pictures or she's been taking more supporting roles i think so to have her have a really strong big role in a movie like this is i think really exciting
5: yeah and you know mindy kaling says that she wrote it for her but she saw emma thompson i think she was watching tv late at night she saw her in a secondary role in a forgettable film and she just said boy she's so funny i'm gonna write a film for her and she did and now the
0: movie was directed by Nisha Ganatra, who has a lot of experience in television, but has made some features as well. And I'm curious w- maybe why you think a movie like this is so hard, that we see so few movies like this. I mean, the movies, kind of, they explicitly have talked about movies like Tootsie or Working Girl as influences. And it's funny, those are movies we're reaching back 20, 30 years to find as influences. Why do you think it's
5: so hard to make a movie like this. I think they don't try very often. I mean, it's hard to make anything, you know, as people will tell you who've worked on movies, it's very hard to make a bad movie. It takes an enormous amount of work and sweat to make a terrible movie. I think because the audience for this kind of movie is so hard to get into the theater. If you have a raunchy film, you have a certain amount of people who are gonna go just because it's raunchy, whether it's good or bad. But this kind of film, if you're aiming for a smart audience, if it doesn't work, no one's gonna show up. So I think people are scared to try. And I think it took someone with Mindy Kaling's clout and Mindy Kaling's ability to write a great script to get this made. A movie
0: that I've been thinking about in relation to Late Night is the Nancy Myers film, The Intern, starring Anne Hathaway and Robert De Niro, because that's also a film that feels like a rom-com, but it's actually a story of self-discovery, self-empowerment, and in particular, that sort of very American issue of people's relationship and sense of identity through their work. work, And that's something that I think is very much present here in Late Night. It feels like a romantic comedy, but it's not. It really is about people's relationship to their work.
5: I mean, to make something funny and amusing without losing anything, I think you gain a lot. You gain an audience. You get people in who may think about issues that they never even would consider if they had to go to a drop-dead serious film to have them present it.
0: And Jeff, Kenny touched on something that the movie has done well in its limited release so far, second strongest per screen average of the year so far, and it's going to be expanding. What do you see as kind of the challenges for a movie like Late Night, to be a success these days?
2: Well, I think first we should probably establish it's notable that Late Night did premiere at the Sundance Film Festival. It was an independent film. It didn't have studio backing the way that a movie like Tootsie or or Working Girl did. It was acquired, though, by Amazon at the Sundance Film Festival for what I believe is a record amount of money. The release of the movie reflects a lot of changes that are happening in the industry right now. The fact that Amazon acquired the movie the fact that they are going to give it a wide release. Initially it was planned to open as a wide release and it started instead uh, in in four theaters to give it a bit of a boost in its first weekend, hopefully get people talking about it. Because that does seem to be what's key for a movie like this is that audiences need to know that they want to go see it because it's a good time. So you need to establish that in some way. And it feels like for the smaller films, that's the way to do it. Start in just a couple cities, get people talking about it online, and then hopefully as it goes to the rest of the country, people will come out and see it. And one movie that people have been talking about in relation to
0: the release of Late Night is Olivia Wilde's Booksmart, which came out really just before uh, Late Night did. And it was kind of a disappointing result for people. and, and and there were some people who felt like, oh, did Amazon actually change their strategy in part because of Booksmart? And now our former colleague, Nicole Sperling, who now writes for Vanity Fair, she wrote something where she talked to some executives at Amazon who said they'd been planning on the limited release uh, for some time before Booksmart. So they kind of wanted to pump the brakes on people thinking it was like a direct cause
2: and effect. Right.
5: You know, limited release, New York, LA release is like a venerable way to yeah. do things. This is not something that was invented yeah. when the online world came into existence. They've been doing it that way for 50
2: years. Right. It's actually more rare to jump into a wide release exactly. with a smaller exactly. film. <laughs> Which is what Booksmart did, took the chance. That also premiered at a festival at South by Southwest. Uh, It's from a smaller company, Annapurna Pictures. They haven't had really great success yet in releasing films. And yeah, it did look after that first weekend of Booksmart in retrospect, it looked like maybe they should have started it smaller, built up more word of mouth at the time, and then gone wider. And Amazon can say what they want, but the release plan for Late Night did shift the Monday after Booksmart opened. (laughs) So it did look like it was a sort of direct reaction. I know.
0: Do you see the specialized landscape of having really... Shifted over the last couple of years, and how much do you think? Maybe even more than major studio releases, is the specialized market the place where the impact of the streaming service
2: is really being felt? Right. That's why it's interesting. This movie is coming out from Amazon because it does feel like there is a shift in the original stories that we don't see very much anymore. Netflix is really interested in making those kinds of movies. Amazon is really interested in making or acquiring those kinds of movies, and it's a little different than uh, we used to see them from a Miramax or or. We still see them from Fox Searchlight, but Fox Searchlight now has these bigger competitors. It feels like the movies aren't quite breaking out as big as they used to. It's hard to tell if that's because people are now waiting to watch these movies at home or because there is more competition with things that they can watch at home. It's just the ongoing question, I think, that the industry is struggling with. Amazon had big success two summers ago with The Big Sick, but even that film topped out at, I think it was around between 40 and $50 million. Uh, If you look back at what Little Miss Sunshine made or some of the other sort of bigger movies that have come out of the Sundance Film Festival, those those numbers were bigger. But the great fear, I think, is the catastrophic situation of what Fox Searchlight had with Patty Cakes a couple of years ago as well. A lot of these movies have been bought at Sundance, and this, this is also an old thing that goes back to films before the streaming era, but where they paid a lot of money and then the movies made almost nothing in theaters. And that's the worst case scenario. Kenny, how do you
0: feel about the dynamic of the streaming services? Do you think there's been some kind of fundamental shift in audiences and like what they will go out to the movies for, what they'll just wait at home for?
5: I think there's been a shift. I don't want to over-dramatize it. You know, everything happens gradually. It's like, Because, as Jeff said, because there's so much to watch at home, it's harder to get people out. It's not that they think the film will get to the home eventually. It's just that, well, why should I leave? This is a great thing that's coming on tonight. I want to see that too. The big fear for me is that we will come to a situation where there's always going to be a theater for the Avengers. Is there always going to be a theater for small independent films? I'm not sure. And I'm nervous about that because I think even small intimate films play better in a big screen than at home.
2: Yeah, and I think what people would say about like late night or Booksmart when there's a comedy like that, that is a case where it's very fun to watch it with a large group of people, and there is sort of a danger potentially of those movies shifting over to streaming to home viewing, where you can watch them in groups if you choose to, but it's not going to replicate the theatrical experience. experience. Yeah, I think if people could vote,
5: you know, abstractly, they'd say yes, I want to see that in a theater. Mm -hmm. But are people going to vote with their dollars? that's the question. Right.
0: Well, it's funny. I keep wondering, you know, there's a recent release on Netflix, Always Be My Maybe, Mm -hmm. starring Randall Park and Ali Wong. And I keep wondering if like at the same time that Booksmart is in theaters, that Late Night is in theaters, are people kind of like, well, this other movie Mm kind of similar. I'll just stay home and just watch that instead. Like, I'm wondering if like part of the Netflix model is like being almost like a spoiler the movie's good enough to stay in for like whether or not the pull of leaving the house to go see a late night or to see a book smart in the theater with parking and babysitters and everything that kind of goes along with it like how people are like doing the math in their head of like actually leaving the house
5: yeah the bar has gotten higher because there's more to see at home yeah you know it's just quite simple but i think everyone who makes films would rather see them in theaters uh, but we'll see yeah. if people are willing to pay for these smaller films and theaters. If they're not, they will go away. I mean, this is not written in the Constitution <laughs> right. that we have to have the Sundance-type films in theaters.
2: And Amazon's an interesting model, yes. too, because they historically have embraced the theatrical release. They bought, I want to say, like, four or five movies out of Sundance. They're all planned to open in theaters first, but they have also indicated that they're going to start experimenting with some of what Netflix does, releasing it on the Amazon service the same day or very close to when it's in theaters. And as that window starts shrinking for Amazon, it'll be interesting to see what films they choose to do that with, and then what the impact is for others. As Disney launches their own streaming service, as Warner Brothers launches their own streaming service, as Apple gets into the game, it really does feel like there are some changes coming.
0: And Disney's streaming service will be starting this year in November, and then the Warner Brothers service is, I think, set to have a full launch early next year?
5: One film I want to bring up that just popped to my mind as we're talking, I'm curious to see what's going to happen with Blinded by the Light, which uh, I don't remember a major studio picking up a film at Sundance the way Warner Brothers picked up Blinded by the Light, I think, because they see a theatrical future for it in addition to everything else. And I'm curious to see if that plays out, if, in fact, there are hopes are realized.
2: Yeah, that's a smaller film that a lot of people probably don't know about yet, but involves the music of Bruce Springsteen. Warner Brothers is releasing it in August. It's around the same time that they released Crazy Rich Asians last year, and I think maybe they see that there's an interesting sort of niche opportunity for marketing with that movie. And it was a crowd pleaser at Sundance, so yeah. It's a real crowd pleaser if
5: you like Bruce Springsteen's music, which a lot of people fit in (laughs) that. it's not a tiny group, you know.
2: But
0: now, Kenny, I want to sort of appeal to your institutional knowledge. (laughs) Do you feel like the movie business has kind of been through this before, going all the way back to the advent of television, then home video, like... Has the business sort of weathered what seemed like these business killings, seismic shifts before? And do you think whatever the difference the streaming services are bringing to the table now, that the business will sort of just absorb it and figure it out?
5: That's a very good question. I mean, look, sound film was a big change. You know, radio, the advent of radio was hugely popular in a way we can't even imagine today. And the business has adjusted and has survived, so you don't want to bet against the business. But really, the way it may survive may be by jettisoning small films. That may be the way it survives. So it's not a question of will it survive? What price will be paid for survival? I think that's the real question.
2: We had an interview with Tilda Swinton out of the Cannes Film Festival. And so she was asked about the current relationship between Netflix and Cannes, and she said that cinema has absorbed all of these things. They've absorbed the talkies, they've absorbed television, they will absorb streaming. And it's interesting, but I think there has been a shift every time it happens. But if you look back historically, I think the shift has usually been for the better. It sort of opened up creative opportunities, and I think the competition with television really opened up a lot of creativity within cinema and pushing boundaries in ways that we hadn't seen before in order to compete. And I think maybe we'll start to see some of that, too, as the studios, desperate to survive, start looking for ways to be more creative huh. in their thinking. So that's perhaps an optimistic spin. on. It's on definitely optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it may be true, but it's definitely optimistic. And at the same time, I think a lot of the material that we see from the streaming outlets and some of the other places that are entering the picture... We'll get more creative, too. I mean, no one was going to make Roma. That's a story that they've told over and over again. Netflix did it. So, you know, if Netflix keeps stepping up in that way, and if we see Apple step up in that way, and Amazon has certainly been supporting very good films... Uh, it hopefully that's a positive. It's funny,
0: It's much as we always like fall down this kind of rabbit hole of talking about b- box office and how much money is this going to make and what's it going to do for the industry and stuff, I always have to remind myself like it's not my money. So it really like my concern, I feel like I have to remember, are the movies good? Does this feel like it's healthy for film culture and for the movies that like are available to consumers, and certainly it is hard to argue with the fact that Netflix is making movies available to hundreds of millions of people in hundreds of countries around the world at the same time with a push of a button. I mean, in some ways that's like a Fantasia utopia that you can't even once imagine.
5: Well, people who love films say theatrical experience is not just an adjunct of the film. They don't believe that it doesn't matter where you see it. They believe you have to see it in the theater to experience it at its peak. And if you believe that, you believe that. And there's very little you can put against that to say, well, it's worth sacrificing that.
2: Right. That's where we need to see where it settles out is how much does it really affect that theatrical experience. Yeah.
0: Because certainly movies that really benefit from seeing them in a theater, not just with an audience, but simply the experience of having that huge screen, loud sound, that I think... You can't quite replicate at home no matter how good your home theater system is. And so I think that is one of the real sort of like dangers
5: of where we're at right now. That's the bottom line. And we don't know how that's going to play out. Right. You know, we're going to live through how
2: it's going to play out.
5: (laughs) And I think that's maybe a good place for us to wrap up this conversation. So
0: Jeff, why don't you tell folks where they can find your work online? You're on the Twitter there?
2: I am at Jeff Berkshire. Jeff with a G.
0: And Kenny? Yeah, I'm at Kenneth Duran. And of course, I'm at Indie Focus. And so for LA Times, Studios, and The Real... I'm Mark Wilson. And this week's show was produced by Katie Cooper and edited by Mike Heflin.
2: (sighs) Lifetime's groundbreaking documentary series, Surviving R. Kelly, captivated audiences and sparked global conversation. For the first time ever, survivors and people from R. Kelly's inner circle shared their full story. Lifetime thanks the survivors for coming forward. Surviving R. Kelly for your Emmy consideration for outstanding informational series or special.